Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello everyone, this is a re-release of Episode 7, all about Johannes Brahms. We're planning to take a deeper dive into Brahms' Hungarian dances in our next episode, but since it's been a few years since we talked about him, we wanted to make sure his biography was fresh in our listeners' minds. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll be coming at you with a new Piping Hot episode in two weeks. Welcome to episode 7 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. And this week we will be listening to Brahms Symphony Number no. 3, the first movement. Yeah, this is spectacular. I recently had the opportunity to listen to the Colorado State Symphony Orchestra play this, and that's why I was inspired to do this on the on the seventh episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Podcast. It is a spectacular piece. And it also ties into our episode 6 podcast, because as you recall, Brahms was a big supporter of Dvorak. So we're going to get into a little bit of Brahms history here, but we're not going to go through everything. There's so much Brahms to talk about. Here we're just going to be focusing on a small side of Mr. Brahms that we believe really exposes his influence and motives for writing his Symphony Number no. 3. So let's talk about Brahms himself, the man, the myth, the legend, Johannes Brahms, born in 1833 to a very hardworking family, although uh, for a lot of composers, unique among a lot of the composers that we've talked about, he was not born into an expressly musical family, although his mother was a well-educated seamstress and his father was an artisan. For his musical education, uh, he learned actually an odd variety of instruments, among which were the flute, horn, violin, double bass, cello, and piano. Uh, he was quite good at these, at this odd cons- consort of instruments. And he showed enough potential on piano that he was actually given free lessons by Edward Markson. From Edward Markson, he learned music theory, and he also developed his love for Bach and was well-trained in the classical Viennese tradition. On his first few documented solo concerts that he gave while he was at school under Markson, he actually received high praise from the press about his performances of Bach fugues, Mozart chamber works, and Beethoven's sonatas. In addition to being a really good music student, Brahms also collected his own personal library of extensive books on poetry, literature, nonfiction works as well, and also quite a few music scores. This just shows Brahms' love for learning things. Throughout his life, uh, whether they were musical or they were literature or anything like that, he really loved reading German romantic poets. Uh, and he loved Bach and Beethoven's music, and he would play their pieces, as we said, at his first official public performances. Now, in addition to his early compilations of folk songs, Brahms created his own collection of his favorite poems and writings about life in a book that he titled Schatzkastlein die Jungen Kreislers, um, and created an early pseudonym for himself, Johannes Kreisler, in honor of a musical character in E.T.A. Hoffman's Kater Muir and Fantasy Stuck in Kallet's Manyar. 
So, as we can see, from an early age, he was really fascinated by folklore and folk songs, and was initially only exposed to Germanic ones that he became very well learned in. However, when he was 15 years old in 1848, he was exposed to the Hungarian style of music by Hungarian refugees that were passing through Germany. Obviously, this led to his Hungarian dances that he composed later in life, but it also influenced his love of irregular rhythms and obscure downbeats that are heard really in most of his compositions. So Brahms traveled a lot, even as a young man, and he followed the symphonies that he played in his own performance tours, and before he was a composer, he was already a fairly well-known musician before he was 20 years old. Evidence shows us that he began composing in the 1840s, but the first official quote-unquote work that we know of is the Piano Scherzo in E-flat, written in 1851. Now, this is before a great turning point in Brahms' musical history in 1853, uh, and this is what really established him on his side of the, quote, War of the Romantics, uh, which is so-called a mostly Germanic sort of musical war about the future directions of music. Brahms was the figurehead on this war for the conservative side that argued for music for the sake of music. He considered his music progressive in this, but that in tonality and expressive, that it followed the direct path of Beethoven. Liszt was Brahms' primary counterpart on the more progressive side of the so-called war, and he was more like Wagner in the way that he was a real advocate for programmatic music. So not so much music for music's sake, but music to express something else, essentially. And this was really what came to be known as the New German School, and kind of stepped out of the path of Beethoven. Now, this doesn't mean that they were just, like, super different styles of music. They were both Romantic-era composers, and they both composed in this sort of Romantic style, um, which has these, you know, the long-flowing melodies and everything else that you would expect from something like this. It was just a difference in their ideology of the way they, of way they approached composition. Brahms' side of the war composed music for music's sake, whereas Liszt, as, as uh, Allison just mentioned, was composing things as programmatic, mostly programmatic styles. And so Brahms first discovered that he fell on this side when he spent time on a German concert tour in Weimar, where he met Liszt. But he left quickly because, and I quote, I soon discovered that I was no use there. And this is just because uh, this was Liszt's most successful time when he was writing his symphonic poems. Um, and it soon came to, quote, horrify Brahms. And he found that he fell, fell mostly on this side of music for music's sake. Uh, and the, the, the audience in this area didn't necessarily dislike Brahms. They just really loved Liszt's pieces. And Brahms just didn't really fit in the crowd. Uh, but then he became a champion for his style of music, uh, along with Clara Schumann and Josef Joachim. And he wrote a manifesto condemning the progressives, actually saying that they strayed from the innermost spirit of music. However, in spite of this musical position, uh, he made an exception. And like many composers, he really did love the music of Richard Wagner, who was considered part of the new German school, but Wagner's influence was just titanic at this time. Brahms wasn't really vocal about his support for Wagner's music, but he admired it because Wagner was seen as a real pinnacle of the time. So 1873 actually marked yet another turning point in Brahms' life. 
Ultimately, his devotion to his cause of Beethoven is the pinnacle of music that brought him to this point. So he regarded Beethoven's symphonies and string quartets as very difficult to surpass. And so up to this time, he had not published any works in those genres. So that's actually sort of typical of composers that followed Beethoven, considering him just so good and his works so insurmountable that they just didn't even attempt to match his works lest they could be compared to the titan that was Ludwig van Beethoven. (laughs) It wasn't actually until he was 43 years old in 1876 that he published his first symphony, and he had been working on it since at least 1855, so that's almost, that's just over 20 years that he had been working on his first symphony, and it's actually very similar in structure to a classic Beethoven symphony. Quite soon after, he brought out his Symphony No. 2 in 1877, and his third and fourth followed in 1883 and 1885. Yeah, so he had a, a quite, after he finally, you know, sat down and said, hey, I can write symphonies too, <laughs> he wrote them, he wrote them, and they were, they were very good. And this shows in Brown's personality, he was a hard worker, a perfectionist, and a very kind and generous man. The only things that he would actually allow to be published were works that he deemed so, and he would actually destroy works that he thought were unpublishable. So there might be, you know, tons of Brahms works that we'll never get to hear because his perfectionist self didn't think that they were worthy. Mm-hmm. However, as we'll see in the third symphony, of course, once he sat down and allowed his perfectionist self to make the symphony perfect, it really had a fantastic outcome, and really it's why all of his works are thought of as great, basically, is because he took the time to actually make them great and didn't settle for things that he didn't like. And so Brahms also, later in his life especially, really fell in with the Schumanns, um, especially Clara Schumann after Robert's death, because the Schumann family had always been very good to him. He set up many scholarships and charities and lived frugally. Uh, he was a little gruff when he clashed with people, but he would show forgiveness when he was warranted. And this sort of emotional aspect that Brahms wore on his sleeve definitely shows up in his music as well. He, quote, retired from music twice, from composing twice, um, in 1890 and 1894, but he was known to be roused by his choice muse <laughs> of Mühlfeld and the Fräulein Clarinette. Mühlfeld being a really prolific clarinetist of the time, that Brahms was just taken in with. He really loved Mufeld's playing and kept composing pieces for Mufeld to play, such as the two sonatas and the clarinet quintet. And he visited Mufeld and his family. Uh, he was, quote, he was very patient uh, with, with their children, and he, he loved them. On a visit to Mufeld's house, actually, he brought the children presents, and due to his rotund appearance and jolly white beard, they mistook him for Santa Claus. Uh, on that same um, visit, actually, he brought Mulfeld to presence too, which was his clarinet sonatas. Uh, but that's that's maybe for a different podcast. <laughs> yes. Brahms made his last public appearance in March of the year he died, and it was during a performance of his fourth symphony. And by this time, all of Brahms' symphonies were very well known, very well loved, and there was an ovation after every movement of the symphony. And then... Just about a month later, he died of liver cancer. In 1897. So, let's talk about Symphony Number no. 3. All of this historical context 
will bring us closer to understanding this fantastic movement. So as he was writing this, um, he sent it out for test performances before it was officially published. Um, as we mentioned, Brahms was a perfectionist, and after each performance, he would tweak little parts of it, working to achieve the best possible piece that he could. His friend and critic, Edward Hanslick, described the result as follows. Many music lovers will prefer the titanic force of the first symphony, others the untroubled charm of the second. But the third strikes me as being artistically the most nearly perfect. Brahms's studious efforts did not go unnoticed. So now, the second time the symphony was performed in America, this is after it had already been published in Europe, so it was by the Boston Symphony, and actually hundreds of people walked out of the performance what? because it was apparently too radical for the time. Oh no! Yeah, and so when we listen to it now, we obviously don't think it's radical at all we just think it's wonderful but there are really interesting elements such as quick changes from major to minor with no apparent transition there are sudden dynamics there's unusual phrase length obscuring of the downbeat there's a lot of key changes within the development section and at the time it really was considered a very strange work I love thinking of these, like, people walking out of classical concerts during this time as, oh, this is too radical, this is too much different, as some of the things that people think about today when, you know, you hear people criticizing pop music and, oh, it's just it's just not real music. And somebody who has just walked out of Brahms' concert saying, oh, it's just not real music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting to realize that some of the same things we struggle with in our time now of the difference between quote real and fake music and the things that we view as real music now were at one time new and different and yeah this was a, this was one of those things um people also you know walked out of several other performances not of Brahms necessarily but of many of the pioneers of these times and now we look back at them as, as nothing more than just part of an era. So let's look at the compositional aspects of Symphony Number no. 3 that have led to it being beloved now, but somewhat hated before. So something to listen to throughout the entire first movement that we're, that we're going to be going through today is a three-note little motif of F, A-flat, F, that Brahms really employed to honor his personal motto of free but joyful in German, frei aber froh. So listen to that as we go through the movement. But there are also a lot of other elements, too. So one of my favorite moments in this Brahms first movement that I think he's really fussed over to make great is right at the very beginning, actually, and starts out with this grand chord progression that includes his F A-flat F motto um, as it goes through a grand chord progression. So it starts on F major and does some fancy transitions that include the A-flat in there, and then you think it's going to end on F major again, which it does, but then it quickly goes into F minor, simply with the addition of an A-flat into the chord. So 
but you don't really notice it quite at first because the violins keep doing their thing in the melody, which only involves the fifth and the root of the chord, which really could be major or minor. And so just right there, that quick little change is really smart of Brahms, I think, because the audience is quickly transported into a different mood right away. And he does, he, he messes with this a little while, and, and there's a variety of sort of introductory ideas, uh, all sort of based around this initial opening idea, until we reach this time, key, slash key change, um, which is really the start of the second part of the piece. So, my next favorite part of this symphony is into the second theme, when the violins pick up a melody that the winds had presented before. So really what makes this element great is what comes before it, because Brahms really changed up what he wrote before to keep it interesting. When the winds had it, it was fresh and sweet. And now, when the violins take it over, they make it emotional. And I think what really does that is the winds had had it as solos, whereas the violins have it in more of a chorale setting. And I'd just like to make an observation here that this sort of building on solos and on themes that happened earlier is something that I've seen a ton in more modern like wind band music. A theme is introduced in a theme is introduced in a couple voices and then the rest of the ensemble has it later on and it, it's this incredibly emotional orchestration. And soon after this part, we have another example of Brahms messing with a phrase. <laughs> and how he does this is he passes little phrase snippets between the first and second flutes and bassoons. So there's essentially a duet of a flute and bassoon that pass it off to another duet of a flute and bassoon. And by doing this, it gives it a slightly lilting and slightly stuttering sound almost. And... I really view it as an emotional whirlwind without actually changing any sort of tone color or orchestration. <laughs> and then what's interesting about this is in the next phrase, he brings this idea back of having little phrase snippets except instead of changing between players, he gives it all to just one player, and there's just light articulation between each phrase section. And so it's subtly different orchestration, but I think there's really a greatly different feel.
So now, later on the piece, uh, we have the same second theme again. Now, Brahms is done with this theme exactly what he's supposed to do. What do we mean by that? So, as we mentioned earlier, Brahms was a great admirer of Beethoven, and Beethoven, all Beethoven symphonies really follow this classical form, and now Brahms does as well. This is a classical form symphony-ish, so now we are in the development section, and Brahms is expanding and changing this theme. What was once happy starts happy. It starts the same way, but it spirals down into its doom. <laughs> And so the way he introduces this much more minor sound is completely unexpected to the audience because it, the melody really starts exactly the same and then he changes it on the upbeat of beat two. So you basically can't get a weaker beat than that to make a big change on. And it really just like grabs the audience by the shoulder and jerks them around into a minor key because it's such a dramatic change in such an unexpected place. If that doesn't jolt you awake, I'm not sure what will. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's not real music. It's not what it's supposed to be. I'm going to walk out of the theater right now. <laughs> so later on, now we hear more development, but of the introductory melody that we heard at the very beginning. He keeps the same rhythm. Uh, but he removes all the underlying pedal tones. Sort of like a theme and variations if the rest of the symphony wasn't there. Uh, but as he develops this theme, he changes the character from almost a strident outburst from when we hear it at the very beginning to more of a calculated, plotting thing. seeing the fastidious and precise tweaking for the utmost expression in his musical work. And it's extremely effective. He's able to take the same theme, just this one little snippet, and create so many different feelings, so many different moods, and he executes it perfectly. All of Brahms is all of Brahms's works are have an incredible depth uh, that some things just don't give us. If you go back and listen to this, I would really encourage you to listen to more of the places where he obscures downbeats or obscures changes from moods and into different keys and puts them on upbeats, puts them in the middle of bars, places where you wouldn't really expect them. And that really marks sort of his, his pioneering spirits. While he worked in the style and in the spirit of Beethoven, he was really writing new music, things that audiences, as we mentioned, hadn't heard before, might have thought they were not ready for it. And another good thing to listen to is how Brahms really began to develop his themes throughout an entire symphony. Themes that we hear here in the first movement, you can actually hear them again, all the way in the fourth movement even. And he's been really ingenious of how he introduces them back in, in an almost unrecognizable way. Right, almost, the way that he manipulates these themes, almost 
tells a certain story, even though it's not programmatic, almost tells a story of these themes as they move and morph through the symphony. So as we play you out with the amazing ending to this piece, I'd just like to thank you all very much for joining us on this light jaunt through the wonderful world of Brahms' symphonic works. Thank you for listening to Episode 7 of the Coffeehouse Classical Podcast, and we hope that you tune in again next time. Symphony No. 3, Movement 1, was performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra. Hungarian Dance No. 5 was performed by Arthur Nikisic. Symphony No. 1, Movement 3, was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. The Clarinet Sonata No. 1, Movement 4, was performed by Richard Stoltzman and David DeVoot. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes or Google Play. Like our page on Facebook, and remember to like, comment, and review. You can email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.